Hello, this is Ken Root. Everyone I interview has something important and informative to say, so I believe they are in the know, so that's what I'm going to call it. People in the Know is sponsored by Concept by Iowa Hearing. I've worn their hearing instruments for almost 20 years. Concept by Iowa Hearing, committed to helping you hear better. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. I have an interesting guest today as I always do, but this gentleman has a very interesting background in newspaper and in uh, Iowa knowledge, and not only that, but a broader perspective on things that I love to hear. He is Chuck Offenberger, a longtime writer for the Des Moines Register, but uh, since that period of time, he has remained a writer, um, Offenberger.com, and uh, now he's doing more writing and continues, and I along with this and continuing to talk. I think Chuck gets paid more than I do, but we'll see. Chuck, how are you today? Good. It's good to talk to you again, Ken. We've known each other for a long time, and I've always respected your work, too. It'll be an interesting conversation. You recently wrote about Cuba and your views on, I would say, normalizing relations with Cuba. Um, I am 75 years old, so I was scared by the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, and we hid under our desk as practice, and we were told to build bomb shelters, and we were basically indoctrinated for all of my life that Cuba is a terrible communist place. However, agriculture and a lot of people in Congress and other places in agriculture have always said Cuba is a country that we can deal with, we can trade with, but our relations with them have never come back from what they were damaged to be in the late 1950s and early 1960s. So with that, from my perspective, what's yours of the past, present, and hopeful future of Cuba? Well, Ken, I've got a year on you. I'm 76, and maybe I have just a little bit longer memory in this. I was growing up in Shenandoah, Iowa, in the southwest corner of the state, and I can recall in the 1950s, now this is before the Cuban Revolution, uh, or maybe it was stirring, but at any rate, the more well-to-do people in Shenandoah, Iowa back there in the 1950s would go to Cuba on vacation, and they loved it. They'd come home and they'd write about the beaches, you know, they would have stories in the local paper about being on the beaches in Cuba or on the boats or at the casinos or going out and look at the sugar cane fields and, you know, buying the rum and the cigars and all of that. And it just always sort of fascinated me. And then I was, um, I graduated from high school in 1965. So it was in my high school years that I became aware, you know, of the revolution happening and the Castro brothers and Che Guevara uh, and the others. Uh, taking over this country, and uh, so I was fascinated by that. And, and at first, uh, younger listeners won't, might won't know this, but at first, uh, Fidel and Raul Castro were welcomed in the United States as heroes uh, for having overthrown a, uh, a dictator, uh, Fulgencio Batista, who had been very cruel in Cuba, uh, and 
So they first the Castro brothers were at first looked like looked portrayed as heroes in the United States, and of course of younger people they were really heroes. And then um, in the you mentioned uh, the missile crisis in 1962, and of course we reacted the same way you did. We all thought we were going to be bombed or have rockets landing around us. And um, but within that time period, when the Castro brothers radicalized. And uh, with, with encouragement from the old Soviet Union, they announced that they uh, were, uh, they had always been regarded as socialists, but now they were communists. And boy, that just triggered an intense reaction in the United States. And of course, when the, when the missiles were, the Soviet was, Soviets were putting missiles into Cuba and, you know, within easy aim, 90 miles north of the United States, that was a really scary time. And, in that era, the, the U.S. embargo or blockade, choose whichever word you prefer, of Cuba, the economic embargo or blockade began. It was initiated by President Eisenhower. It was stiffened by President Kennedy. And ever since then, it's been in place. Um, it, was, it was softened in 2015, 2016 by President Obama and then President Raul Castro, he had succeeded Fidel at that point, and uh, but then when President Trump was elected and took over, um, everybody in Cuba was waiting to see what was going to happen, and uh, he stiffened things uh, even more so, and it, and it's been really really rough on the Cuban people since then. Uh, so, and all of this is just like you said, especially if you have an agricultural perspective or interest. It's so frustrating because this could be a wonderful trade relationship with Cuba nearby. It would stabilize the Cuban economy. It would let the people thrive there again. And it would bring, uh, it, it would be new markets for the United States, agricultural products, and a whole lot of opportunity there in terms of technology, equipment, and personal exchanges. Uh, so, I have long thought that it was time to end the embargo or the blockade, as I say, end that and get back on better neighborly relations with Cuba. Um, because that embargo has been so stiff, uh, it has really been a tough, tough time right now in Cuba. Uh, the country is really on the rocks. Well, I uh, find that... Uh Propaganda can be put out by any government. And uh, in the years that uh, have questioned to keep the embargo on, uh, I have uh, been able to find things that, that were not highly visible at the time. The reason that the Soviets moved the missiles into is because we put missiles into Turkey. Yes, and that we were playing a game with them that they equaled us and challenged us, and uh, it uh, and, and also I lived in Oklahoma, which may not be a big deal, but it was it's interesting to me that we always had this weather map, and the weather map always showed the Gulf of Mexico, and it showed South America, but it never showed Cuba, and Cuba is a big swath really across just south of the Keys and running to the west and has elevations as high as 3,000 feet. 
But I had no idea that Cuban even existed during that time period. So to me, our government wanted to just block them out, literally. And I feel like that North Korea and Cuba are treated pretty similarly by our country. And yet, I don't disagree with the North Korean position we have of nuclear missiles and and the way that they treat their people. But in Cuba, I just see it as a country that we could and should develop a relationship with that's good for both of us. Um, I totally agree. And, you know, there's another interesting thing. and Some of this is proximity, of course. But the longer history of the U.S. and Cuba really goes back to the 1800s. And when when the U.S. facilitated Cuba gaining its independence from Spain, that was 1898, I believe. And uh, subsequent to that, the, the first 60 years of the 20th century, um, Cuba, you know, the U.S. was a huge presence in Cuba. In fact, many of the companies that made the Cuban economy, like uh, U.S. Fruit and the sugar companies, and, you know, were American-owned. And um, and and sometimes the relationship was very good, uh, but in other times it was pretty poor. The U.S. companies tended to exploit cheap labor in Cuba. Sure. Um, and then, uh, but still, it was it's pretty good relationships. But in the 20s and 30s, there was another factor that came into this, and it was that the mob, the mafia. Yeah moved to Cuba and took and introduced casinos and that was a whole nother element and then the Cuban government had trouble being very uh, upright I mean it was very you know very shady kind of government and um, that's when things started getting tough so when the and that's what inspired the Cuban revo- revolution in the 19 late 1950s and 60s let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker president of concept by Iowa hearing Taylor, are there widely used medications that can negatively impact our hearing? Great question, and yes, there are. There are over 200 prescribed or over-the-counter medications that can attribute to hearing loss. And, you know, when you're looking, when we're talking about, you know, medications, the average person over the age of seven, or over the age of 55, excuse me, 72% of people over the age of 55 take at least one drug. And two-thirds of all drug reaction, adverse drug reactions, occur over the age of 60. So you're talking almost three-quarters of the you know, population over 55 take at least one drug or one medication. You know, we're talking simple drugs from an aspirin regimen. An aspirin regimen, and we're not talking baby aspirin, we're talking regular size aspirin. If you take an aspirin regimen um, five days a week or more, you have an increased risk of hearing loss by 26%. Um, some of the big ones are diuretics, so people that have uh, high blood pressure, kidney disease, um, like the myosin group, you know, erythromycin, vancomycin, that whole myosin group um, can attribute to hearing loss. Um, hydrocodone, um, you know, um, oxycotton, you know, um, Rush Limbaugh is the famous one for that because he, you know, got addicted to the oxycotton and that caused his hearing loss. Then he had to get a cochlear implant. So, you know, and, and he was very honest at, you know, toward the end about what, you know, what caused that. Um, chemotherapy drugs. So if anyone has gone through chemotherapy, chemotherapy wreaks havoc 
not only on your body, but on your hearing as well. Um, you know, the little blue pill, little blue pill uh, can attribute to hearing loss. So there are, you know, many different, uh, you know, medications, whether they're over the counter prescribed um, that can attribute to hearing loss. So the best thing to do is, is, you know, get with your doctor and the pharmacist to find out what the side effects are. If there are other medications, maybe where certain, um, certain side effects are less with one versus another. And it's just having that open dialogue, you know, with your, with your providers to really understand, are there, you know, ramifications for the medications I'm taking. And sometimes, there's just, you know, there, there's no other choice but to take the medication, just understanding um, that it can attribute to hearing loss, and, and it's something you need to monitor. Thank you, Taylor. Schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing. You can reach them at 877-955-4020 or online at iowahearing.com. When the revolution happened, a lot of those Cuban people who had become very wealthy working with American companies or starting their own companies in Cuba to take advantage of all that tourism and all the other uh, business possibilities there, you know, those companies were nationalized by the Castro regime. And so those people who owned and managed those companies fled, and most right. of them South Florida. Which today the ex Cuban expatriate community in South Florida, this would be the Miami area by, by and large, it's one of the most powerful political blocks in America. And they have swung presidential elections because they tend to vote like a block. And, um, and so that's been a big factor in why the embargo has stayed in place. And it's because those expatriates in Florida insist that it does. A lot of people don't realize the power of that group and uh and i did not myself cuba had its revolution it wasn't like the banana republic revolutions that we have that where you know somebody comes in they take power they pardon the last dictator who gets to leave and take the money with him because that's what they want to do as soon as they're through ransacking the country cuba had people that truly believed and I don't know which newscaster it was, but there was someone. He said, I uh, saw a young Cuban rebel who had thrown a grenade, uh, and it had been uh, thrown back out of the vehicle, and he grabbed the grenade and threw himself into the vehicle and was killed. And maybe this was in a Godfather movie, I don't remember. But whether it happened or not, it appeared that the the fervor with which Castro built them up to and uh, the determination to become a pure communist country was something that those other countries in uh, Central America had never had. Yes, I think that's very true. Uh, the, the, the people of Cuba were ready for a revolution in 1959. Uh, Batista, the regime, had been so cruel He'd been a very popular president in 1940 when he was elected as a young man. <clears throat> but when he took over in a coup in the early 50s and then ruled for seven or eight years as a dictator, he, he was awful. And uh, so the Cuban people were worn out on that, and they were really ready for that revolution. Um, interestingly, um, another factor in all of this 
is you know in all that time from the from 1900 to the 1959 there was so much interaction between the two countries and I'm talking about the U.S. and Cuba, <clears throat> including in in an area of special interest to me, which was baseball. You know we had <clears throat> Cuban baseball teams. We had a Triple A team, uh, the Havana Sugar Kings, that were affiliated with the Cincinnati Reds. And so AAA baseball was played all the time in Cuba. And the, the Sugar Kings would come to the United States and play all over. And then eventually Cuban players started showing up in the uh, in the big leagues in America. And so they, there was that interaction too. And they're boxers. They had boxers who yeah. went to the Olympics and yeah. won the Olympics. And they, they had a mindset kind of like East Germany. You know, that if uh, we want to take our people to the very top of something, we will put all the resources into it necessary, and it was a source of national pride. And another point of that, um, and again, remember, uh, the Castro brothers are rebuilding a country that had been ruined by the mob and by uh, dictators. And so what they wanted to do when they took over, their their platforms included the best medical system they could put together that would be free to the people, the best education that would be free from kindergarten through higher education, and in all kinds of cultural developments, uh, the arts were thriving, and that's still the case today. I mean, that the, their medical system there, except for when they can't get medicine or can't get supplies because of the blockade, in other in any other time, their medical system is fantastic, as is their education system, uh, as are the arts and culture and sports and all the other measures of citizen, uh, uh, you know, of a good society that we would 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 like to see. And uh, so they've made great great progress in Cuba, but now it's time, you know, their infrastructure is worn out. They are now having electrical outages four to six hours a day is not uncommon. Um, the, the food supplies are, are undependable. Uh, medical supplies, uh, medicine supplies are uh, undependable. And uh, the technology is not keeping pace with the rest of the world. And that, of course, has a very interesting effect on the young people of Cuba. They... Of course, they like you and me. We all have our phones, and we all have smartphones, and their their internet system in Cuba is is not good, but it you know it will work fairly well. It's available in most town squares. They have a Wi-Fi there that's free. Um, but so the young people of Cuba and have a, have a good idea how the rest of the world's operating, much more so than they once did. And young people there told me, now I was there in 2017. I was there for a week and a half. Great, a great time. My church has a sister church relations with a church in Havana. And, um, so we spent a lot of time with average Cuban people when we were there. And the young people there were telling me at the time, they, they really didn't want to leave Cuba. They're, you know, they said, we're Cuban. You know, we, this is our home country. We love this country. We've, it's been good to us in terms of education and medicine and other ways. But we know what life is like everywhere else in the world. And we're not going to wait a whole lot longer for that to happen here. And what they mean by that, that's not a threat they're going to overthrow the government. What it is is they're just going to leave and they're going to go to other places. And that's happening now. 
there's a great outflow among younger Cubans. And and as a result, and because of that good medical system they have there, there are a lot of older people like us around Cuba too. And uh, so it's a, it's just, I just think it's one of the most interesting places on earth. And I think there's no reason that we shouldn't have a great relationship with them economically, but socially, spiritually, um, you know, in every way. Um, it was an interesting story, Ken. Uh, I just wrote about this a week ago and, and, and spoke about it publicly in Des Moines, too, about the reinstitution. Because when the Castros took over the government, they, they all, besides nationalizing the businesses, uh, the major businesses there, they also suspended religion. They banned the organized religion. And they, uh, and so, you know, pastors were leaving, churches closed. It was terrible. And then in the 90s, um, when the Soviet Union collapsed, they had been the major supplier of nearly everything for Cuba in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. In the 90s, when the Soviet Union collapsed, Cuba nearly collapsed itself. And it was very, very hard times because they had no supplies while they were trying to develop new relationships with South American countries. And um, uh, some Cuban... Uh, parliamentarians who had also had religious roots and were former pastors went to Castro and said that you need to reopen churches. You need to make churches available to people. And they have. Churches are thriving in Cuba today. And most people in the United States have no idea about that. Chuck, let me me, me bring this to a close here, if I might, on the time we have. What can we do from this point forward? You and I have so so much history of this and some of the interwoven things that there's one thing that I, maybe two, that I don't know if we can do. One is for us as a country to just say, okay, it's over. We're going to normalize relations. Obama tried it, and he didn't get nearly as far as he wanted to go because a part of that is what you stated earlier, this Cuban power base in Florida that literally is strong enough to flip a national election. And they want their land back. They don't want Cuba to have the the structure it has today. They want to go back to where they owned everything. And they are very powerful politically. So do you believe there is a simple path back to normalizing relations with Cuba? Relatively simple. Um, and, and keep in mind, we're talking international relations here. But um, I, I think the answer is to draw that line and say, okay, end of the blockade, end of the embargo. Um, our, chief, our chief goal in imposing the embargo initially was to try to, impo- try to create regime change in Cuba. And I think after 60-some years, we can conclude it didn't work. And all it's done is enforce cruelty on the Cuban people. So resume normal relations with with Cuba. Encourage the Cubans and with our advisory capacity and our business knowledge and technology to help create Cuban governments, or excuse me, Cuban companies, Cuban-owned companies that would develop in Cuba to run their own show down there and be the, be the masters of their own destiny. But they would be in big trade relationships with United States companies and other companies from all over the world. 
And then the other part I really like the most, president should have the commissioner of baseball in the United States put a Major League Baseball franchise in Havana. And I'm telling you, it would make a major difference. And it, it should encourage all American fans to follow their teams to Cuba and encourage Cubans to follow their Havana team as it tra- travels around the United States and plays. Would it be an incredible difference? Right, right. Well, I don't know if we'll live to see it. I would uh, think that uh, capitalism, just trade in itself, can do a great deal to be able to normalize relations. I do too. And the thing that back in with was trade. I do. I agree with you, Ken. And one of the things that you and I will appeal to you and I is I think maybe in all the different phases of economic life, maybe that would help Cuba the most and and be wonderful for the United States is in agriculture. Right. Well, I had a gentleman who was named Marion Barry, who was a congressman from Arkansas. I don't remember his name because it was the same as the mayor of Washington, D.C. at the time, who was the outrageous gentleman. And he said, we grow rice here. We grow other crops here. We are not threatened at all by Cuba, but there are a lot of things they want that uh, we have, and there are a lot of things that they could export to give them more money. And we went through the whole system, and basically as long as they can capital become capitalists in their economy um, they can become normalized citizens of the world and at a much higher level than what we would consider developing nations so i have no fear of them uh, i wish this were over but i just don't know if we'll ever be able to find a way to politically accomplish it i i pray that we will and i think we can Chuck Offenberger, always a pleasure to visit with you. There's a thousand more things we could probably talk about. So if you wouldn't mind, I'll get back with you. How can people read your material? Well, again, you mentioned as we started out, our website is offenberger.com. And I also write on the Substack platform, which many of your listeners will be familiar with. I write a column there called Iowa Boy Chuck Offenberger. I watch you on Facebook, and uh, you look like you're having a heck of a good time. Life is good. Hope it is for you, too. It is. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to People in the Know. I'm on the hunt for guests to interview. If you have suggestions, contact me at this email address, kenroot at gmail.com, K-E-N-R-O-O-T at gmail.com. Have a great week. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, brothers, let's go down, let's go down, come on down, come on, brothers, let's go down, down in the river to pray.
as I went down in the river to pray, studying about that.